0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures,
2: stamping, problems. You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
2: The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years created by Carl Tsipras the, Start Change the Hub is about impact. 90%. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome back to the Art and Science Reading Group, uh, joint hosted by Science Gallery Dublin and the Trinity Long Room Hub, located at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Um, thank you guys so much for coming back and spending some time with us uh, from our quarantine caves to yours. You are very, very welcome. Um, my name is Autumn Brown. I am a research, uh, a PhD researcher. Is that what we're calling ourselves now? An early career researcher at the Trinity Long Room Hub. And and the PhD researcher at Science Gallery Dublin. Uh, My research is on informal science learning spaces that take an art science approach and how that art science approach might transform science and change the way that we look at the culture of research and innovation. With me is Amelia McConville,
0: Yeah, perfect. So yeah, so my name is Amelia. Hello to everybody who's tuning in. Uh, Oh, sorry, hang on. Can everyone hear me? Perfect. Um, yeah, so my name's Amelia. Thanks so much, Autumn, for the um, the introduction, and welcome everyone to the Art and Science Reading Group. Um, we're so delighted to uh, to be hosting our second virtual session um, here tonight. Um, so yeah, basically it's it's up to us to just in- introduce you. We're going to kick off um, fairly fairly immediately, um, and we're very excited to have with us here tonight um, Anna Dimitriou, who's very kindly uh, agreed to uh, to be our uh, our artist to interview tonight, and we're going to be speaking about her work and some of the readings that we recommended people have look at um, before uh, the, the session. Um, so yeah, a brief introduction of myself first. Um, yeah, my name's Amelia, as I said, and uh, I am a PhD student. I'm an interdisciplinary researcher working with uh, primarily with the School of English, but also with the Institute of Neuroscience in Trinity. Um, I'm doing interdisciplinary uh, research on uh, visual poetry and neuro-humanities um, and looking at ways to, to have um, have conversations across those two disciplines. Um, so yeah, Autumn and I actually met in, in Trinity uh, long which we have to say a huge thank you to, um, as well as to Science Gallery for hosting our our virtual reading group and for making it possible um, to have us here uh, with reaching so many more people than we ever thought possible. So um, thanks again for joining us. Um, Yeah, so it's up to me now, I suppose, to introduce Anna, uh, who we're so delighted to have with us, uh, as I said tonight. So um, Anna is a British artist who works with bio art, sculpture, installation and digital media to explore our relationship to infectious diseases, synthetic biology and robotics. She has an extensive international exhibition profile including Ars Electronica, ZKM, the v Museum, Philadelphia Science Centre, the Museum of Contemporary Art Taipei, Art Laboratory Berlin and the Museum of the History of Science. She was the, the 2008 President's President of the Science and the Arts Section of the British Science Association and her work is held in several major public collections including the Science Museum London and the Eden Project. Um, Anna has presented talks on her work at various prestigious venues including TEDx Conferences, the Tate Modern, Princeton, Imperial College London, University of Oxford, La Musée de la Chasse et de la Nature and UCLA. Her work is featured in many books, including Bio-Art Altered Realities, which is published by Thames and Hudson in 2016. And she's written for many other significant publications across contemporary art and science, including Freeze, Artform International Magazine and Leonardo Journal, as well as Nature as well. Um, in the past, Anna's work has explored synthetic biology. She's also worked with the MRG Grammar Project to create artworks using CRISPR gene editing technology and also collaborated with Beyond Seek at the University of Birmingham to explore the biochemistry of DNA. Uh, most recently, she was also featured as the answer to a question on the popular BBC Two series, QI. Um, so Anna, thank you so much for, for being uh, with us uh, here tonight. And I'm gonna turn over to Autumn uh, in just one second to ask her our first question to start off our discussion. Um, but also just to let our um, our participants know um, and our audience that's, that's joined us here tonight that we're hoping that people can uh, participate as much as possible um, in our conversation this evening. So the way we're gonna run it is we'll have a general Q&A with um, myself, Autumn and Anna are gonna have a conversation uh, about Anna's work and about some of the reading. Um, We would encourage everybody to um, ask us questions, um, share your ideas, your provocations, your comments um, as as you're listening to this. And then at about seven o'clock, we're going to kick off with um, our proper discussion um, and take your questions and ask them to Anna and hopefully facilitate as much of a a conversation um, with with everyone as possible. Um, So thank you so much. uh, And I'll pass over to Autumn now.
2: Thanks, Amelia. Yes, this is definitely an informal conversation group. The original iteration of this was in person in Science Gallery Cafe. So do throw those comments, those questions in there, and we'll be really, really excited to share them with Anna. But first, um, Anna, would you mind describing the plague dress uh, that was mentioned in our reading? If you all didn't get a chance to do the reading, don't worry. Yeah, so um, my
1: plague dress is um, is a uh, 1665 dress design um, with um, a long gown um, from the Plague Era, Restoration Era dress, which is dyed with walnut husks. And it's got an embroidery across the front, which is original period embroidery that I managed to acquire. Um, And then impregnated into that embroidery is the DNA from Yersinia pestis, Plague, which I managed to extract in the lab at the National Collection of Type Cultures in London, and then when the dress is shown, it's surrounded by um,
2: by lavender and stuffed full of lavender. Amazing! And what is the significance of the one dye and the lavender? Was that yeah? The um, the dye was used by um, Samuel Col uh,
1: not Nicholas Culpepper I believe, Colpepper. Um and. Uh, the lavender was what they used to stuff into the into the nose, kind of the masks of the plague doctors in, in those days. So yeah, you're looking yeah. at it there. Beautiful. Um, so yeah, it was just stuff full. And actually the um, the middle bit of the, um, the, they have this thing called a bum roll basically um, that goes around <laughs> the, the waist. Uh, I think that's where the name comes from. I have never really managed to find the history of it, but. Um, but uh, this is stuffed full of uh, turmeric and other spices that we used as uh, treatments and, um, and kind of the spices that you used to stuff into the, the plague doctor's masks and things at the plague era. So it kind of, it's a, it's a very olfactory
2: experience when you actually see them. Amazing. Planet. And two, were any of these treatments, either the walnut or, or the lavender, actually effective in preventing <laughs> okay. Okay. So they were just sort of folk tales. No, folk it's stories. actually a very,
1: very deadly uh, plague. I mean, it's one of, uh, it's one of the biggest killers, of, if not the biggest, one of the biggest killers of humanity. Um, and as I say in the article, um, one of the most sublime organisms from history. So it takes quite a lot of treatment. Um, and I mean, even, even now without treatment, you're looking at a 50% death rate. Okay. Good thing
0: um it, it's quite a dangerous kind of illness. Absolutely and, and I noticed you mentioned there a keyword the sublime um which um for anybody who's who's uh, who had a look at Anna's article in Antenna magazine um, you talk about this wonderful concept of the bacterial sublime and when, there's actually like totally by chance there's actually a link to um famous Trinity alumnus uh, Edmund Burke so I wonder maybe you could talk t- tell us a little bit about what is the bacterial sublime and how do you conceive of that notion?
1: yeah well i was i i was fascinated when i first came upon the notion of the sublime uh, it was quite a few years a very long time ago actually and and i i was kind of i was stunned was like yes that's the thing i'm interested in that's that's it but um and i'm interested in these bacteria and there that's what's going on in my head so then i started to go through all this research which seemed um, which it became a, a sort of ridiculous rabbit hole, actually. I started to do a PhD, which then I ended up finding that it didn't really fit with my art practice to be working in that way. So um, so I was kind of exploring all these things. But this idea of the sublime um, that Burke talks about is really fascinating because he 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 actually mentions a few things. He creates a list of these things which he considers to be Sublime, which is kind of it's kind of odd. So he he found there was this original text that was uh, republished and became very popular around that time. Perihipsu, I'm probably mispronouncing it um, by Longinus, probably mispronouncing that as well. Um, <laughs> and uh, and this was published, and there was an article in the Spectator around that time. And Burke then took it upon himself to write this this. Philosophical Inquiry, which I have here, The Philosophical Inquiry on the Beautiful and the Sublime, um, where he kind of makes a list, look you can see all my notes in it, he makes a list of all the things which he considers to be sublime, and he talks about that, and and you have to understand that he he, he was writing this um, in the sort of early 18th century when, so they had seen bacteria, um, animalcules, as, as um, Van Lernhoek called them, but so they'd been observed by that time. So he, he kind of had a sense of this and he mentions in the text that the very tiniest things might be sublime. So, and, and then he also mentions the obscurity, not being able to really see something or make something out. Is, is an aspect of this idea of the sublime in Burke. And um, I've got here, because um, we were talking about this um, the other day, um, this, is one of Van, this is a replica of Van Lernhoek's microscope, um, that he used to look at bacteria under the, the microscope. And you see, you put, you put your sample, I've kind of used a bit of sellotape here, this is a piece of Irish linen, actually. Um, you put your sample there, and then you hold it up basically to the light and look through and then you can sort of see through this tiny hole you can see you can see the um, whatever it was and so that that's <laughs> what they were using to look at um, the, the kind of the first bacteria that were seen and so he was aware of that when he was writing this so uh, that's what really fascinates me and then obviously Immanuel Kant this fella I struggled with you can see all my notes in here um, he talks about the sublime in the sense that, in the sense that um, it, it's not something that you can put in a list, really. It's not, you know, it's not a mountain or a, or a, um, a big dark hill or a, a tidal wave or something like that, which Burke might talk about. Kant says it's all in the, it's in the mind of the person perceiving it. So it's that sense, it's that relational thing then, um, that, that he talks about. So I, I kind of and, and this relationship to this idea of the sublime and the the fact that I mean particularly plague, <coughs> and we're we're living through another pandemic, not nearly as um, at the moment anyway um, as dramatic as the the Black Death or something like that. But. Um, it changes the world. I mean, it stops everything. It's this is what I was I was always talking about in terms of how much plague has changed the world, and um, and uh, it killed half the population of China, third of the population of Venice were killed at one point, third of the population of London roughly were killed. We don't know the exact figures, but. Um, and it brought in things like public health that hu- created huge changes to how we live our lives, governance and trade and, and all these all these things. And and we're kind of living through that again.
2: Absolutely. It's really interesting that you say too. you know, that the information that we have through that from that time is largely from diarists like very, very famously, and mentioned in your article, uh, Samuel Pepys, and so much of what we know about what happened, the fire of London, and the plague that struck were from diaries. Mm. Um, And it's extraordinary too, I think, perhaps you've seen online and in different places, now that everybody thinks they're so, the new Samuel Peaks, which I think is kind of extraordinary. So it's really interesting to imagine what art might be produced or what we might learn going forward mm. um, from the diaries that are being kept now. And it's interesting too, your work, I, I've, I particularly love it and it resonates with me because there's a shame, I, I love science, but we have this problem of modernity. We are always looking forward and so rarely looking back um, at history. Actually, citation patterns, I have this nice little quote pulled out. Sh- citation patterns show that the older research is considered less relevant than more recent research. This is called a research front. Science really does pay little attention to its past, sticking mostly to current work. And then that the present-centric kind of view of things uh, allows scientists to keep looking forward without really often taking lessons uh, from looking back and I think your work really really highlights that this we call this the new normal we call this kind of unprecedented but it really isn't no it's not. <laughs> it really really isn't uh, most of it apart from the tech
1: side of it most of it's happened previously and the tech stuff's really just stuff that was happening in in different of ways you know in the papers these I mean they used to publish papers about you know several times a day so there'd be this thing being handed out um, all the time so the news was really quite up to date probably more than we have to an extent now (laughs) Um, so yeah it's interesting because we think we've really moved on we think we're so different from like 350 years ago Samuel Pepys
2: Um,
1: but when we're not that's what I love about reading his diaries is that it's like you know these people they're just normal people he's mainly like going to a coffee shop worrying about how, where he's going to get his clothes worrying about how he's going to visit his girlfriend that's that's a quite a, a ongoing theme in the in the book <laughs> <laughs> putting up with his wife you Probably. know these sort of things it's just it's
2: uh
0: it's a kind of fascinating it's just so fascinating and yeah Perhaps um, Anna linking, linking um, the, the lovely quote that Autumn shared uh, with us just there and your comments previously there where you, you, you mentioned uh, linen and I know um, in some of our preliminary conversations mm-hmm. before this event we talked a lot about linen and I, I think maybe well I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, linen that I, I suppose that something that links not just disciplines but uh, I suppose generations and centuries and um, you made a really interesting point about linen before and I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on that.
1: Um, well li- linen's so fascinating because it's, um, it's this first biotextile if you like um, it's, it's made I'm sure people in Ireland know this through a process called retting um, which is a kind of where the flat stems are put in these stagnant pools and rotted away by bacteria so it used to be quite a smelly process it's still made in that way but they do it in tanks now rather than the traditional way of having these kind of pools, and it reappears, there's these sort of themes that reappear in textiles and in, in medicine and in science throughout history that I'm fascinated, in linen's one of them. Um, and I think I was talking about, so Van Lernhoek, the, with his microscope, the reason I've got a bit of linen here, Van Lernhoek knew how to grind these lenses because um, he was looking at the thread count because he was a linen draper um, and so it was the linen that kind of came, came in there and he, came, he saw um, um, Robert Hooke's Micrographia book which is famous drawing of a flea in it, around which was published in I think 1665 as well, um, not knowing, he didn't know that the flea was this big vector for, for the plague to be transmitted. But um, Van Loenhoek was less interested in that, but he saw there was a lovely um, drawing of the threads under the microscope. So Van Loenhoek was inspired to kind of look and do uh, uh, do his own lens grinding. And people, I mean, I think they sort of think they know how he did it now, but it was in question until very, very recently, um, how how he achieved these, these fine lenses. Um, mm. And then you've got this whole thing with linen being the first, the fabric that you could wash. So silk was never washed. It's too fragile. I mean, when the the sort of the old washing methods was to put it in a copper and boil it up, or something like that. So beat it with a rock down by the river, um, or use mangles and that sort of thing. You can't do that with silk; it will tear it. And you can't do it with wool. Wool's kind of antimicrobial, actually. So doesn't necessarily need it you can hang it outside and you can clean off the stains and so wool's good in that way but linen you can boil up and you can you can you know bleach it in the sun and things like that so because of this thing that you could wash it linen became a representation of cleanliness so the piece in the article that i mentioned is called clean linen and it's about this this fact that clean linen was considered proper cleanliness. So you didn't wash your body. What, going out and having a bath, that'd be weird. You'd catch a cold if you did that. But if you were wearing clean, white linen, um, that would meant you were a clean person. When I say clean, it could be three weeks old clean linen, but that's quite clean for those days. And so there was this idea of cleanliness, um, that if you washed the, if you, that the linen would regulate um, the humours in the body um, and it would leach these toxins out of the body so the dirt would go out into the linen and then you'd wash the linen. So the piece I, I made with that clean linen, I think you've got a, probably got a picture of that one haven't you Amelia? Yeah. Uh,
0: um,
1: the piece I made there, it's, in, it's embroidered, it's an original French linen nightgown from the period that um, it's prior to the end of the time of humoral medicine that so it's an it's an antique gown that i've then embroidered with white work embroidery um mm. in um in various parts of it so around the neck you've got um you've got um um diphtheria um bacteria Um, you've got um, mycobacterium tuberculosis there yersinia pestis there and you've got the bacteria that cause scarlet fever which you can't see they're a bit further down on the stomach Um, and then in those areas so you've got exactly where they'd kind of be in the in in the body in those areas i've actually impregnated them with the dna of those four kind of really significant organisms of the time and I should say that um, DNA is, is sterile, it's not infectious. So you can work with plague um, DNA. It's, it's, we extracted it from killed plague in the lab. I have actually handled and worked with live plague in the lab, um, but when we do the DNA extraction in order to be able to take it out of the lab it needs to be it's killed plague and then we extract the DNA and then it's been through rigorous kill protocols and things like that working with Public Health England um, at the National Collection of
2: Type Cultures where I'm their artist in residence.
1: Amazing
2: actually that was one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about as an artist who's frequently working with scientists in laboratories what is that process like? But also, why do you do it? Why is that important to your artistic practice? So many artists don't go near science is not their thing, doesn't really inspire them. So I suppose, what is it that led you to work with scientists and in laboratories? And what has that been like? I think I was really
1: fascinated in microbiology. And it's important for me to do stuff hands on. I can't Explain to people or tell the story or understand it without this without actually having done it myself So I need to kind of absorb everything and learn as much as I can in order to be able to communicate the story So if somebody wanted to kind of go into the details of how I extracted the DNA and and stuff like that If I ever got questions on it, I would know and I have all the proofs anyway, but um, still I can explain everything and that's really important also um, in terms of kind of uh, I did a, a piece called confronting the bacterial sublime which was which was a written piece that I did in response to uh, going into the category 3 lab and handling plague um, bacteria and handling anthrax as well but mainly it was about writing about being in, um, working with plague um, and and that's that's kind of interesting because when you're doing it you can't really experience the bacterial sublime you're there with it you have your hands in these glove boxes you've probably seen in movies Uh, but what you don't know is they're kind of like inflated so because they are under all this negative pressure these you've got you're double gloved and then you take the take your gloves to the to the lab coat and then you put your hands into this thing and then you're handling the bacteria and then they say things like Use those scissors there to cut open those um that those petri dishes so so you can do some work in there, but you have to actually in with these big inflatable gloves you're you're actually kind of cutting with scissors and being very careful not to cut a hole in your gloves obviously i mean it's all under this negative pressure so you can so it's being sucked away from you um, right. you can't actually catch it from just touching it <laughs> but um but still it's it's there is a, a sense of this to, to an extent, but actually you're more worried about, in my case, I was more worried about doing it wrong and looking like I was an artist in the lab rather than a microbiologist because I've been, not that I am a microbiologist, but I, I'm fully an artist, but I wanted to, um, I kind of wanted to be accepted as a microbiologist because I've done many, many okay. years of this. So I kind of felt that I needed to do that in the in the lab, which is an interesting kind of, so I did I wrote a reflective piece on on that experience Mm -hmm. and um one artist I think here O'Reilly said to me that um she said oh that's interesting because basically the procedures of the lab took over and you were following that rather than trying rather than being able to have this artistic thing so it's interesting how these these things kind of kind of impose on each other I guess
0: well I'd love to ask you though Anna like on that on that, that, very topic, you know, we uh, obviously one of the things that we're very interested in in uh, breaking down through the reading group is this, you know, totally binary opposition between arts and science. You know, we just don't believe that that binary should exist. But your work, because you, as you say, like you have extensive experience with actually microbiology and working in lab based um, scenarios and everything. But I suppose uh, in terms of the artistic impulse for you and the interest in science and that mutual influence, I mean, do you, do you use the science as an influence? Does artistic inspiration strike when you're engaged in learning about the science or reading about it, or how does that relationship yeah, I
1: mean, definitely. Uh, it's the, okay. like the research, looking into the history. And I always talk about the boring moments in the lab. So when you're doing work in the lab, there's quite a few boring moments. I don't know if people <laughs> listening in on this have done this. There's bits where you have to run PCR machines and they so it's like, we've got to put it on for five minutes. And then he's just standing by a machine that's spinning things for five minutes and we've got to put it on for another five minutes. And we have to cool this down for 20 minutes because you have these protocols that tell you what you're doing here and what's next and what's next. And so there's quite a lot of boring steps in the lab. And it's during those moments when I get to talk to the researchers about any old rubbish. And that's where a lot of the really fascinating stuff kind of comes from, um, I think. So that's really good. And I've been working with my longest collaborator now for well over 15 years pushing 20 years now. Um, so, so we have like quite an interesting kind of relationship of ideas and he knows how it sort of turns when I, when we're going to start doing something. Um, so that's, that's interesting. He's retired now, but he's writing a natural history of bacteria um, at the moment. So um, as a, as a, as a written, but he'll be able to go back into the lab. We actually had some very lovely plans um to do new work um together in in the lab with the nc with the strains of bacteria from the national collection of type cultures That's all kind of got delayed because of the pandemic, but um, we're gonna do it afterwards
2: Absolutely, and actually so on the kind of art science collaboration and art science approaches, one of the um, other Edmund Burke quotes that you've included in your article, which really, really jumped out to me, is he wrote, when we go but one step one step beyond the immediate sensible qualities of things, we go out of our depth. And it is really interesting to me at those spaces, when we fear, feel out of our depth, is it is it then that we should employ art science approaches? Is it then that we should experiment with different forms of inquiry or different forms of making knowledge and understanding the world? I would say probably yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of as, as simple
1: as that. I mean, in, in a way, I don't think we can kind of help it is we have to find other ways to, to understand things and talk about things. It's, with, with things like the, the pandemic at the moment, there's so much that we don't know still is that how can we kind of help people who are in a space where we're going, well, what should I, what should I do? What should, what, what, what does this mean? You know, what's next? What, when, or my dad, for instance, said, um, said, uh, when, when's this pandemic, when's it gonna all end the, the lockdown? And my mum, and he was asking my mum, and she said, well, if I knew that, I'd be on the TV, wouldn't I? Instead of those people. <laughs> <laughs> so I quite enjoyed her perspective on that because it, it's like that, but people just ask and they expect someone to know. And I know there are scientists out there, but we've never seen a pandemic. We've never seen a, um, this, this organism before. Um, and we don't know exactly when it's going to um, be safe to fully go outside and these things. And we don't know what's going to happen with the vaccine fully. There's, there's a lot of hope, I think. Um, but um, yeah, we don't know exactly the timeline and there's a lot of uncertainty.
0: Absolutely, and Anna, on that, I know it's, it's quite a big question to ask, but, um, especially considering that your work in recent years and with, with a special focus on on Plague Dress, um, you know, again, that work we've been discussing from 2018. I wonder, do you see, as, as it is in the moment, um, I know, as we said, the situation is still evolving, but do you see um, the potential for there to be, I suppose, any knowledge gleaned from these this kind of work these kind of art science approaches to different um different artistic practices and exhibitions like do you see them having relevance if not influence on how we respond to the current pandemic or do you feel that it's maybe still evolving um in a very new space it's it's
1: still evolving but i mean that doesn't stop art from responding throughout and i guess those responses will will change. I've been making, I, I've got this piece called Ex Voto and um, it's a, it's a, I think you've got an image of it actually. Yeah, i got it up okay. of it. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a piece where I made these kind of, they're like s- basically secular votives that you might see hung into like a Greek, um, church or something like that but each one is is representing something about infectious diseases so it's either um somebody taking antibiotics um or um or um Somebody who works with antibiotics, or somebody had an infection with an infectious disease, and it, it, the main focus of it has been antibiotic resistance. And you can see these ribbons that are there, and they're all dyed with different things to do with to do with infectious diseases. So um, the the orange ribbon is Prontosil, a very early antibiotic. The yellow is um, turmeric. The red is madder root, which was used as a um, an antimicrobial dye. Woad as well, which used to be uh, which is antimicrobial, but used to be used painted on the faces of the the and the bodies of the warriors, the Scottish kind of warriors, um, like in the film Braveheart or something like that. And the people think that maybe the warriors that painted their faces and their bodies blue might have survived better in battle because if they get cut they wouldn't have necessarily died of infection and then some of these other ribbons are dyed with different like genetically modified streptomyces and the staphylococcus aureus from my body and things like that and then yeah you were just going to show i think the um image some of the just the starting images that i've been kind of creating i've got a whole box full now i've been doing one every day kind of inspired by you know things that happen on my friend's Facebook posts or something I've seen, and so you know these are very basic ones. I've got a face mask and a and a lung, and then up the top there, that's the Starlink satellites. Um, the Elon Musk's launch these weird satellites that are going across the across the earth in these. Um, well, you see them on Facebook. I've never seen one. I'm <laughs> I'm really dying to to see them going over, but uh, apparently they come over in a line, and it looks really weird. And I thought, well, and I grew up in Hastings, where um, famously we had the um, the Battle of Hastings, where Britain fell to the the Normans. And in the Bay of Tapestry, there's um, there's the the Halley's Comet flying over, is embroidered into it. So I was sort of thinking about this starling because this kind of technological comet flying over us as this sort of portent of this this time much like the Battle of Hastings and Halley's Comet so I was sort of there's (laughs) lots of things and then I've got like my friend walking. He, I've got one friend who's doing COVID-19 testing in a hospital. He posted on Facebook a picture of um, his nice walk to work. He was like, this is the nice bit before I get into the lab when I'm doing my commute. And he uh, had put a photograph of some trees and a pretty sort of woodland. So I drew that. And that's, you know, I'm going to kind of, that's that, that's one of his stories, one of his memories. So there's all these different things emerging. So I'm kind of like, if people have got things that they think should be included, um, I'm kind of collecting things to include in that and hope it will grow and grow so i'm probably going to dye the ribbons with turmeric because i read that um in india now all the turmeric uh, root are sold out because they're using that as um believing that's a treatment for covid19 they think it's um helpful for that it's probably not that helpful but um yeah, um, but I, I like the idea that it's being used. Sometimes I use things, that I don't necessarily think these dyes are antimicrobial or particularly antimicrobial. Turmeric's a little bit antimicrobial, but not enough to work as a as a kind of antibiotic. Um, it doesn't have high enough levels of curcumin, the active ingredient in it to, to affect us when we eat it. Um, it works a bit in a Petri dish, or if you're washing things with it, it can be a little bit like... It could replace a disinfectant to an extent. Um, so I'm probably going to kind of dye these ribbons with the turmeric or anything else I kind of find like that, and uh, and then hang hang these things on it. And and the NCTC is related. Well, they have lots of different collections, the National Culture Collection. So they do have a national virus collection. I'm not saying I'm going to impregnate it with uh, COVID-19, but it could be possible to take a small section of out of frame DNA or RNA, I mean, um, of the of the organism um, and and use that or just to just to create a small section that from the genome that isn't the organism, which anyway, isn't a problem once it's got rid of its lipid membrane. But let's let's, that's, that's the sort of debates I go into with my I wrote, this <laughs> book, trust me, I'm an artist, which I actually did an event for at the science Gallery. Dublin and um yeah um, that's the sort of question I go into there because I'm kind of fascinated in that what can I do what do I need to do to make it safe and then then there's this free son of this this and that's I think that's sort of the sublime is this knowing it's there even though it's safe and and, and that's somebody that like other writers have talked about this idea of, actually the sublime isn't terror it's 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 got that safety so it's like you're seeing a tidal wave but you're seeing it from a safe position or you're watching a volcano but if you're actually on the volcano with the lava coming towards you it's not sublime anymore it's just terror (laughs)
2: um got this removal i think it's pretty interesting too and also it almost is like what it feels like to look at to be on a boat and look out at open water just completely overwhelmed and by the immensity of it I think almost the way that you described the sublime in your work and, and the sublime from the very limited reading that I've done of Edmund's, uh, Edmund Burke's kind of interpretation of it is that it's this feeling of of being so finite and fragile yourself when you are faced with something so great, immense or powerful and tiny um, and, and have that feeling of like, overwhelmed and and potentially maybe something related to to awe or humility and yeah maybe maybe yeah definitely no it's to do with that it's to do with this kind of
1: great leveler thing I think as well Mm -hmm. is that um rich poor whatever we're all equal in front of whatever these sublime things are Mm -hmm. um like covid-19 however rich you are um (laughs) however powerful you are you might still end up on a respirator, or at least getting oxygen in intensive care, as we as we've seen. So yeah, and um, actually, I should say Burke. Um, Burke originally kind of had his reflections on the sublime. The initial ones were um, there was a flood in Dublin that set him off on all this thinking about it. Apparently, so um, yeah, floods are quite
0: important. Fantastic. I think on that note, Anna, I we'll, we'll definitely start start open. Opening up um, to our uh, our questions from our from our attendees, and the questions have been have been flooding in by the Q and A section. So please do get your question in in now if you want us to try and address it. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to touch on at least everything that people are bringing up. Um, maybe just coming on from what yourself and Autumn were both just saying there, Anna. Um, There's one or two questions that have come in um, asking about the, uh, first of all, the element of risk. That question comes from uh, Camilla Fanning, who is um, an Irish etching artist. Um, But uh, So Camilla asks about how much risk is an element of interest in the work. And then there's also a question from um, Dion Ellis Taylor, who asks, is there an element of thrill-seeking in handling these almost dangerous animals? So talking about those dangerous bacteria um, and DNA. I know you were talking there about the the idea of the plague being dead, but you know, it, it is is, is that an element of your work?
1: Not the thrill seeking. It has been suggested. It was suggested at the Science Gallery Dublin. Actually, in the we did an event for um, the my trust me I'm an artist project where I was talking about the idea of building a category two in a lab, and it was suggested that I was. Um, interest in working with more and more dangerous bacteria from, from maybe from that perspective but I don't think it is that perspective it's their significance to humanity and there aren't many artists working with infectious diseases because one it's quite hard and you have to go through um, enormous processes to be able to do it and kind of dedicate your, your life to doing it um and uh but I don't think any microbiologists would would like a, a, I think I've I'm not a microbiologist, but I would sort of see myself as in, in the same sense as microbiologists, And I don't think that they they do it from the element of thrill-seeking because as the other question, the risk thing, the risk's really quite low if you understand how to do it right. Like I wouldn't, I'm not like going into a category three lab to handle play just to, just to get this thrill from it. I'm not, I was, if anything, I was, I was trying to do it right, like sciencey right, um, which um, is different. But I think it's 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 the history of the organism that is interesting to me. So whether it's um, whether it's the um, um, Yersinia pestis, which causes plague, or MRSA, which causes um, skin and whatever infections and blood infections—that's kind of super bug. Or Clostridium difficile. I mean, is that a thrill-seeking bacteria? It causes um, ulcerative diarrhea. Um, and it smells quite bad and it creates biofilms and I've made artworks. My spindle piece is um, is on my website that you can see under the From the Field section. And that's made with these Clostridium difficile biofilms. Clostridium means spindle um, Mm -hmm. and the sort of the early Clostridia um, like Clostridium pastorinum, which was originally called Clostridium pastorianum, um, was um, discovered by Sergei Vinogradsky in his explorations of the retting of flax. He was this pioneering microbiologist who looked at whole ecosystems. So I wouldn't say there was um, an element. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you've got yeah, it. You've got my Clostridium difficile biofilm um, pendulum kind of bits on, on this piece. Um, well, they're like spindles, really, drop spindles. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I would say no to the thrill seeking. I would, I would say in, in terms of the risk stuff, what's interesting is if your questioner was an etcher, you said. The yes. The yeah. so I always compare what I do to the feeling of etching. Actually, it's very similar working in the microbiology lab. You're, you're kind of, you're working with these things. They're not, you know, they're not going to leap out and get you some, like, I don't work that much with viruses. So we have a different perspective here on like, because the world thinks about all these things flying around in the air or whatever at the moment. So I'm not working with them. I'm working with these things that are, you know, in a Petri dish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't pick them up and sniff them unless you know what's in the Petri dish. Um, that's that's very bad. There's there's some things you can actually catch by sniffing a Petri dish, um, but um, they don't tend to leap up and and kind of, kind of get you, Um, you have to be careful. But um, if you're aerosolizing them and doing those sorts of procedures and stuff, you have to be careful. um, And you have to follow all the protocols in the lab. And I have to do, I can't tell you how much health and safety training I've done in my life. But um, etching, it really feels like microbiology. There's sort of working with these acids, and do you put your hand in? Do you not? What gloves do you need to wear? And um, and you've got these big sort of cabinets with the extraction, and you have to go through every five minutes. You need to feather the etching plate or something. I've done quite a bit of etching in my in my time as well, so I have a have a sense. And there's a lot of processes that come from things like. Um, Like gram staining, which is where you put the dyes on the bacteria to dye the cell wall to be able to look at them under the microscope. A lot of them are quite artistic processes. It actually feels very much like making art.
2: Amazing. So uh, we've got an audience question and an audience comment. Uh, So question. From Andrea Bendeli, if you would be able to say a few words about the antibiotic resistance quilt, resistant quilt, and that he loves this work, uh, not only because it was commissioned by Science Gallery. <laughs> and uh, we've got a comment from Sahar Ahmed. Uh, we grew up drinking turmeric and milk, now being appropriated as turmeric lattes for being anti-inflammatory in Pakistan and India. So that's really, really interesting to hear about your work with turmeric Mm. and she says, thank you. So, um, yeah, antibiotic resistance quilt. So that was
1: a quilt that I made commissioned for, um, one of the shows at the, at the science gallery Dublin, that was shown there. And, um, the piece is impregnated with silk squares that I grew in petri dishes with the WHO's top 10 superbugs. Because antibiotic resistance is this massive existential threat for humanity, which our, the UK, uh, the England chief medical officer, previous to Chris Whitty, who's always on the TV now, but um, Dame Sally Davis said that it was as big a threat to humanity as climate change. So mm-hmm. that's quite bad, um, And... It's just because the bacteria that we use to treat diseases are slowly evolving or sometimes quickly evolving resistance to the drugs that we use to treat them. Um, they've always been doing this in their own way in the soil or whatever as they, as they evolve, but now it's much speeded up and it's targeted to those those um, drugs that we use to treat them. And so we need to be finding solutions for this, understanding the genomics of the bacteria and things like things like this. Um, and the COVID-19 crisis is a big problem for this because there's a lot of um, use of antibiotics now in, um, in the bacteremia, that well, well, lung infections, particularly bacterial pneumonias that people are getting and they're being given prophylactic antibiotics for, um, you know, if they're going to have a ventilator or something like that. Um, also, also, if uh, like dentists are now giving people antibiotics for toothache, um, rather than having them come into the surgery because they can't do that. So to keep them keep them at home, keep them okay, they're being given antibiotics. So we've gone back to using a lot more antibiotics than we were. And we were trying to really reduce that. But now it's gone back up. And one of my collaborators said it was... Um, a bit like throwing a bomb at the issue of antibiotic resistance this pandemic, and we 're actually doing some more work on this together, so we, she managed to get some, some funding it 's Jane Freeman who I made um, spindle with um, and some of the other work with Clostridium difficile with and she 's managed to get some funding before this to work with me on another, uh, on some more work, and we decided that we 're going to take some of that focus and put it into this issue of antibiotic resistance. So it's this soft sort of cozy quilt, the antibiotic resistance quilt, but it's impregnated with the top 10 WHO superbugs resistant organisms, things like, um, um, uh, well, it's got a drug resistant E. coli and there's some, some super gonorrhea, things like that, basically. They're really nasty, problematic ones, but they're all sterilized. And it was, it was kind of an offshoot because I was working on another project at the same time for the Science Museum in London for their show Superbugs. And what we wanted to do was create um, a series of Petri dishes which you could show in the gallery that were the Superbugs but were sterile. And so we were <laughs> growing lots of these for that and trying to do experiments to make things that the, the, one of my collaborators described them as basically stuffed. So they look alive, but they're dead. <laughs> um, and, and that was complete trial, that project. But as a sort of nice, fun project on the side of it, much more simple to do, uh, was, was to actually impregnate these bacteria in some of the petri dishes whilst I was doing it and having all these top 10 superbugs there. And I could make these two projects
2: at the same time. That sounds and, amazing. Oh, yeah. and- and awful and (laughs) the other project sounds a lot like almost bacterial taxidermy is what it feels like you've described
1: it was a nightmare actually it's really hard to do (laughs) i had a lot of collaborators on the on the project um i mean it was really effective in the end and it looked really good in the space but um it uh, i i I, for the amount of nightmare it was i really under budgeted
0: how much i should charge (laughs) Um, Anna we have a question he's come in from um that's come in from Radek freds uh Radek has actually brought up uh, the, the other bio artist um Eduardo Eduardo Kack, who I know I, I think Kak's work is amazing
2: um
0: mm. and he's act- I think he actually features in that um edition of Antenna you sent us mm. there was a feature on some of his work as well so um Radek asks um Eduardo Kak defines said bio art is in vivo which for me suggests a certain metaphysics of presence which can be seen in contemporary arts utopia of liveness um, i.e bio art, performance art etc it seems to me that your work problematizes CAC because your notion of bacterial sublime weaves together material things and immaterial concepts a bit like Karen Barad's idea of mattering i.e the processes of matters mattering. How do you agree with that assessment? Um, um, I
1: I decided I would take a broader definition of bio art, um, okay. which means art made somehow with living things. But in terms of pathogenic infectious diseases, um, it's very difficult to keep them, have them alive. So you can't do that. But also having, once you accept that you can kill them, um, And exhibit them then it it makes your life a lot easier in terms of getting the art out to audiences and that's something that's very important to me and the fact that they were there there's this this trace of them there's this history of them to me that that with the sort of sense of the sublime thing these these invisible organisms that still that still gives that to me i hope it still Gives that sense to to audiences as well, um, so that's how I respond to it. I have talked to Edouard de Katz about this, and um, he he's very happy with um, my repurposing of the term. I think he 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 likes my work. He told me so, <laughs> but obviously, you know, he's a great pioneer. He coined the term, and. Um, it, his work is amazing. I I was reading about that when I was a student, and mm-hmm. you know, a huge inspiration to me. So I've, I've talked to him a few times about all this stuff. So he right. had a really great pioneer.
2: <laughs> amazing. Thanks. That's really cool. It's also nice that you all have had the opportunity to chat about these things too. Mm. We've got another question. It's from Fiona uh, Johnston. She says, is Anna able to say anything about the COVID and Domestic Violence Commission that she is working on for Art, Data and Health? Yeah. Um, So
1: just before the pandemic um, started, Um, I was commissioned by Art Data Health at the University of Brighton to work with a domestic violence charity called Rise in Brighton and to work with health data in collaboration with them. And the pandemic started, I was about to do um, um, a few days of workshops um, and it literally was, I think, it it was the week of about the the fifteenth of March or something around around then, so it was just when just before the lockdown official, but the universities in the UK had already started to close, and so all the workshops were cancelled, and it wasn't really safe to to go ahead, and um, and so that that caused a lot of rethinking. I want to do the project but also there's this really important issue of women are at home and they're locked in with partners who may be abusive um or or not just women but particularly women um and children being locked in at home with partners who may be abusive in in some form or other and i was also thinking a lot about how um well, I, where I live in Brighton, just up the road from me, I'm talking of writers, um, uh, Virginia Wolfe lived in Rodmell, and she wrote this very famous text called *A Room of One's Own*, where she said, "You, if you want to be a writer, you need five hundred pounds and a room of your own with a lock on the door." And uh, to paraphrase her expansive and wonderful book <laughs> or essay, um, and. And I was thinking about this idea of the room of your own and how you could create a safe space of your own, but these women don't have it. And then I was reflecting on the, um, the images of the temporary hospitals that were coming up, particularly the ones being built, um, that I'd seen um, being built in Wuhan and in China. Um, and you know, you don't, it's the opposite of a room of one's own. So what I did was um, I created an online workshop, a kind of web workshop, Um, Which was a practical workshop about playing with the idea of a room of your own Which could be talking about the themes in domestic violence. So this was to work with the um, Charity team and then the rest of the work I've been doing this kind of and uh, sort of the opposite of a room of one's own to make explicit this issue Um, and that is um, It's representative of one of these temporary hospitals. So I'm currently in the process of making Um, lots and lots of tiny little hospital beds which is what the installation will be um, based on these temporary hospitals and so they'll sort of stretch out as a kind of large but they're about I think they're about this big each Um, so there'll be like a Floor area, or I think they'll go on a table, a large table in the installation space. That if if that goes to plan, um, and then um, with little mattresses and little pillows and things like that, and then there'll be embroidery on them, and that will be focused around the data to do with um, the situation with women. So I'll be looking for, I mean I've been collecting a lot of information about the about the data from the press, I'm also going to be talking to the people at the University of Brighton who I'm working with um, on the project and, and with RISE hopefully to get some input about what data that I should represent in this form and I want to do that by embroidering it onto the kind of the bed coverings. Amazing,
2: it's
0: yeah, it's, it's super to hear that that's how you're, how you're going to move, I suppose, move forward with your next um, piece and how it will relate to the current, um, I suppose, the current situation we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose that kind of links a little bit to a question that came in from Daniel Scarantino, who asks, um, have you done or would you be interested in working with modern fabrics, particularly medical, medical grade fabric or PPE, like masks or gowns? Um, and I know, Anna, you might have sort of a- already answered your question about how you're relating your work to, to the current crisis. But yeah, is, is that something you would consider moving uh- forward?
2: I have
1: embroidered a lab coat which is a very early work I did I think about 2006 it is on my website under I think normal flora under the tab on my website normal flora and it's a white work embroidered um, lab coat and I think we had a little when we were talking originally preparing for this we were talking about this book I think it's a a reading group I felt the need to bring out books that inspired (laughs) me and this one, The Subversive Stitch by Rajika Parker was a huge inspiration for me and in this book she talks about how the role of women, um, basically she talks about how when when, natural science or natural philosophers were first doing this like men were doing science and and trying to work out things like the age of the earth or the the weight of the earth or something like that the um the sort of the highest level of achievement for a woman was proficiency in white work embroidery which she should do by candlelight and hunched over wearing a corset and stuff like that looking and the stitches are microscopic when you look at White work. So I've been playing with this idea of embroidery and kind of doing science through the lens of embroidery, inspired by what I read in that book many, many years ago, very, a very long time ago. It's been, it's been a big inspiration for me. But that piece is, is I guess using something like that. Um, I did a sort of performance thing, but we never did anything with it. With one of my. Um, former students at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, who's now um, 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 an obstetrician in um, Leeds. Um, So she's actually working um, in an operating theatre with women who who are having babies who might have been exposed to COVID. So she has to, she said that I've done quite a few votives about her drawings of her PPE and what they call PPE face you know this this sort of where been wearing the mask and stuff so she sent me quite a few of those we did a sort of performance about putting gloves on in a sterile way that she would have to do to put them on before she goes into theatre because normally what I do is like when I put the gloves on it doesn't matter if I get stuff on them really because either I spray them with them spray them with alcohol if you're going to do some like synthetic biology or or um, you're basically trying to stop the stuff from touching you rather than you getting the stuff on it. So um, so that was a very different thing. So we sort of did that, but we did it in a kind of, um, in a kind of performative way. We made a video, but um, I don't know if they ever made saw the light of day, actually. It was one of those sort of playful, playful things that you do. Um, It's possible that I might. Um, I haven't got anything planned at the moment, but it's possible.
2: Amazing. Uh, So we do have another um, audience quote and then another uh, comment, I should say, and then another question. So from Claire Moriarty, she wanted to say, uh, what a beautiful talk, interweaving art, science and social consciousness. Really inspiring to see where art practice can take you. and then we have another question. Uh, this is from Lyles Gaines. Uh, I was interested in the section of the article related to TB. How do you approach it as both historical epidemic and a current one? And how are our perceptions of it has, have changed over time? It's, it's, well, yeah, I should say, so TB
1: is, is still the world's largest infectious killer. Kills about one and a half million people a year. Um, We have a vaccine, but it's not that effective. Um, We have drugs to cure it, which do cure it, it is curable. Um, So if you're treated with drugs properly and effectively, then um, you have a very, very good chance of not dying from it. But um, a lot of people still die from it because they don't have access to drugs and there's huge amounts of stigma in the world now. Um, on this and that's something I'm very interested in is this this issue of stigma around um, diseases and also around domestic violence talking about that as well you know these things that you just shouldn't talk about Um, and so so there's that side so in the past we used to talk about it as the as the sort of it was sort of as a romantic disease in in a way it's been it's been with us since you know since as long as as long as any disease pretty much. Leprosy or Hansen's disease is the oldest disease known to man but they sort of come around the same time. They found TB in Pliocene era mammoth bones I believe. So it's been with us a long time and it's been the biggest challenge for microbiology. It's really clever and slow growing and we still don't fully understand everything it's doing. Um, so so there's that side. I did. I went to um, Tashkent last year with the Medicine Sans Frontières conference on tuberculosis in Eastern Europe and Central Asia and I gave a talk on my work and I exhibited my artwork around TB there and that was a real eye-opener I mean that was fascinating because you had scientists from all these different countries who and scientists and healthcare workers and all sorts of people in the field from sorts of countries that almost never get to see kind of the kind of work I would do. So you had people from Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, obviously, um, and, uh, India, um, but lots, lots of different, lots of different countries coming there. And so that, that was interesting because they had a really good reception to the work and there was a, they, they were talking about actually the health minister of of Uzbekistan said in her summing up at the end of the conference that um, people should think about collaborating with artists to get their stories out to people and to kind of try and break down the stigma. But you have to wonder whether this, this, these stories, these myths we created about the poets and this beautiful death and this sort of stuff was kind of a, a kind of manipulation of the idea of stigma. Because rather than thinking of people as poverty, you know, have it being in the poverty situation, Um, you could think of them as highly creative poets wasting away or something like this. And, you know, Lord Byron said, I think I should like to die of a consumption. And then all those ladies would say, look at that poor Byron, how interesting he looks in dying. And so it's this term of of the idea of being pale and interesting. Um, It actually comes, no that's what it comes from! (laughs) I was just taken by surprise, it was great! (laughs) It's it's also, it's also, and I'm working on a project, another thing I'm doing now during the lockdown, I'm working on a project called Susceptible which is uh, commissioned by a project, uh, which is commissioned by Driver Arts Driver um, and it's in collaboration with the Cryptic Project led by the University of Oxford. looking at their new research. I've got all the data from their latest um, publication, which which they published with the the press release Groundbreaking Publication. And I think you've noticed that scientists are very reserved in using terms like Groundbreaking Publication. So the fact that this made it onto Oxford University website with the phrase Groundbreaking Publication, it's really groundbreaking. (laughs) What they've managed to do is they've sequenced uh, the genomes of I'm just going to paraphrase this big data, loads of TB um, from all around the world. And they've managed to um, grow it in these plates where they compared which TB would grow in the presence, which genomes would grow in the presence of which antibiotics. And from that, they've managed to work out from the um, four first line antibiotics. Um, by looking at the genome, you can tell which drug will work on it. And this is the first time they've ever been able to do this. So you can sequence the DNA of the TB from the patient right. and you can know what drug will work on it. So and this, this is a methodology, a protocol that could be applied in lots of different infectious diseases now, but they've done it first in TB. So I've got all the data from that. And we're making an installation, working with Alex May, making an installation on that uh, about that at the moment, which is going to be, premiered in a kind of lockdown way um, at the Everart Festival, which is usually in Moscow um, this year online. uh, I'm in a show called, um, I think it's called Neural Network Apophenia. So it's to do with looking at neural networks and big data and and pattern recognition. So it's in in the show and it's going to be like this weekend
0: festival in June. Um, Anyway. Yep. Amazing. Anna, listen, we could listen to you talk all night, but unfortunately I think we are out of time. Um, so yeah, before I hand over to Autumn for just closing remarks, Anna, is there anything, um, any particular virtual events or exhibitions where your work is being exhibited, is there anything you'd like to plug for yourself before we, we say our goodbyes?
1: There's a, uh, there's a virtual exhibition called All In It Together, Okay. Um, uh, on at the moment, which you can see mentioned on my website, which is anadimitru.co.uk. I've got an actual real life show on at the moment in actual, you can go into a gallery and see some work, which is called Archea Botta, post-singularity, post-climate change life form, is in Kunstpel-Langen in Germany. And um, then I think the next show that I'm in, The Plague Dress, will be in July, hopefully. The aim is to open on July the 16th, I think. Um which will be at the Rijksmuseum Boerhaave in the Netherlands which it's going to be on for quite a while the show so over six months I think so um or at least yeah about six months so I highly recommend it if you get a chance you're in the Netherlands if you're in Amsterdam it's really easy to get to Leiden to go to the Boerhaave Museum and if you go there you can see the original Van Lernhoek Microscope
0: amazing so it's well worth
1: a trip so it's going to be in the, and I have to say that gallery is a former pest house no where way. they treat patients for plague, so it's a wow. perfect location in many ways.
0: Amazing, and is it just just before we wrap up, I will say to everyone, um, to all the attendees, we'll of course follow up um, with an email um, and share the various links to the various different things we've talked about. I know we've talked about some of Anna's um, articles and works, and we've we've uh, it's been a lot of people even putting their suggestions into the chat. So we'll send follow up emails to everybody with all this information. And um, so yeah, I'd like to say thank you, and I'll just hand over to Autumn now to close our session. But thank you so much, Anna.
2: Thank you so much Anna and yeah as Amelia said we've got our A-side email that goes out with our kind of leading articles and um, to kick us off for every reading group but then Following up, we'll always uh, come back at you with our B-sides if you wanna take a deep dive into the different readings that we've got going on um, on the theme. So thank you again, Anna. Thank you everybody for coming and joining us. Um, From our quarantine caves to yours, stay safe, stay curious, and next time, We'll be talking with Claire Moriarty, um, Dr. Claire Moriarty, excuse me, philosopher uh, extraordinaire, and we'll be talking about uh, Euclidean geometry and a man with a very explosive intellect. He blew his hand off with dynamite. Uh, <laughs> Come join us to learn more. Anyway, stay safe, stay curious. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to
0: the next 10 years.